want to invite my good friend Jason Law to come up, uh, give Jason some love. Come on, Jason. So Jason and I are going to just have a uh, conversation today. It's, it's Be a Voice Sunday, uh, Be a Voice for those who have no voice. And when I began thinking about this day, I thought of Jason because of world compassion, but I actually thought specifically because of your personal story. When we're talking about adoption and foster care, tell them your personal story. Before we get into the organization and, and what, what you're doing, but tell them your story. the way up here. <laughs> it's a bad plan. Um, my biological father died when I was three years old, and my mom remarried, who I've grown up always calling dad. I never looked at him as a, a stepfather or anything like that. He just wasn't my blood father. Uh, Terry Law, who I've now followed in ministry footsteps, and that's a, an amazing story we'll talk a little bit about maybe today. Um, but yeah, so my, my dad passed away when I was three years old of a brain tumor. Um, have some images of him uh, but, but not a lot. And then at five, my mom remarried uh, Dr. Terry Law, who, who adopted me within just a few years. And I think about just this Sunday, and it's like be a voice for the voiceless. And I, since we have met, and I, was, I know I was going to come do this, I thought how amazing it was that a man chose to adopt me into a fantastic family. I mean, I mean I've, I've had a phenomenal life. It wasn't all perfect all the way through it, but he gave me a voice. He gave me a name. He gave me... Mm more than just a roof over my head and food and clothes and all the, the provision, uh, he's given me, a, God gave me a future through that adoption, really. I, what I, I love this, your story simply because when we talk about the story of Joseph and this idea of what the enemy means for bad, strikes so early in your life to lose a father and like, well, now, now I got him. I mean, that's what the enemy in that moment, I got him. I got him and it, this kid's gonna be in trouble now the rest of his life. And God, though, says, no, I got him. <laughs> I got him. And, and for him to step into your, your life and become your father and the, the, the trek, the, the path that took you on. So um, a lot of people probably don't recognize or know your dad's name. I do. And, and people who've been around church for a while obviously know your dad. But tell them what you stepped into and now the, what you're leading. Yeah, so my dad was, he's a, from Canada, came down here to go to ORU back in 1969. So he was actually part of the first graduating class from Oral Roberts University before all those buildings that we see every day were built. And um, on that campus, he started a music group called Living Sound that traveled all over the world, Russia, European countries, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, over 500 young people led um, those, those groups. So at any one time, there would be seven different bands on the road, all called Living Sound, seven different groups traveling the world using music as missions to reach their generation. Ended up opening the door into the Catholic Church in Poland. Pope John Paul II invited him to play a massive concert in Vatican City. Mm. Opened up all the Catholic churches to him globally um, and brought kind of an evangelical message into the Catholic Church. And then from there, that ran until about 1987. And uh, from 1987 to 92, uh, my dad's wife, his, his previous wife, passed away in a car accident over on 101st in Delaware, hit by a drunk driver. And that's... So my mom and dad met and then mm. merged families. Um, but he's always been called to reach nations that are restricted or hostile to the gospel. Mm -hmm. And we're in our 52nd year now of doing that. And so my dad actually passed away last year, 2019, um, quadruple bypass surgery, kind of went bad. So it was a little bit unexpected. We had transitioned the ministry back in 2014 from him to my leadership. And, but 52 years later, here I am as an adopted kid, brought in, not a blood son, 
um, but have the honor and the privilege of, of continuing his legacy forward and taking the message to countries that are close to the gospel. It's so, it's just so amazing that a three-year-old boy that the enemy thinks is done is now leading world compassion. And, the, and we have a, a picture here of you with your dad. Is this smuggling Bibles? What's this, what is this? Yeah, is that on the screen right now? Yeah, there it is. There yeah. it is. Yeah, so this was, so that's my, my older brother, Scott, and then my dad, uh, Terry, and then me in the goofy hat with my big ears. <laughs> but this was, I think we were 12 or 13 years old. This is probably my second or third time overseas. I went to Russia with my dad in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, 89, 90. And this is China, I think 92, 91, 92, 93, somewhere in there. And we had just landed in China, and those were the Bibles that we literally had tied around our waist in these Bible belts that some lady made for us. We had like four or five suitcases full of Bibles, and then on that trip, we ended up printing like a million Bibles in China on presses inside the country. I was like, why did we carry these in here? But it was, I think, more of a lesson <laughs> that we smuggled Bibles in. Um, but I remember we had to go to the bathroom on the plane on this trip and tie these Bible belts around our waist. And we got to the hotel room, and I was so terrified that I had tied that thing so tight my dad couldn't get it undone, so we actually had to cut it, cut it loose. But uh, So that was the picture. Of, of that experience going into China with some Bibles around the world. Wow, what 12-year-olds having that experience in their life. Man, that's unbelievable. And now you guys are doing work all over the world. Um, we're talking about uh, a little bit about adoption. And uh, tell them about some of the work that's happening right now with the pastor and the orphanage. Yeah, in Myanmar, we, um, it's back to 2008 when I was there. People may not remember, but a major cyclone hit the country of Myanmar. It's next to India, south of China is where we are regionally speaking right now. Burma, they had a big military coup earlier this year. But I was there in 2008 uh, doing some relief work. Over 300,000 people were killed by that hurricane, flooded the southern part of that country, and they wouldn't allow any aid in. So it was pretty, a pretty gruesome picture. And I met this pastor during that time that we have gotten to know, and to this day we do a lot with this church. But I walked into his home. And he's got like six or seven kids already of his own. And then there's eight or nine additional kids that are just sleeping on his floor. Mm. And I remember looking at these kids, and he begins to tell me this vision of having an orphanage. Uh, because in Burma, they're so poor, people, parents will literally either sell their children to make money, which they'll go into the, the, the trafficking rings into Thailand. They'll smuggle them in into Thailand. Uh, or they will just abandon them because they can't take, can't take care of them. And so then you see children working in tea shops and coffee shops and restaurants and sleeping in hammocks. And they're, they're my kids' age, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, and they're not getting educated and they're working and they're at high risk for being trafficked or turned into a sex slave. So he's telling me all this, and I'm like, you mm. know, I'm, I'm younger at the time, and I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, I have enough money strapped to my waist right now. I think I was carrying 20 grand for that, that trip for projects to... I, we could help build an orphanage and fulfill this man's vision. Wow. And so that's really where that was birthed was uh, my, my pastor drew my attention to a Ritz-Carlton statement. It was in a, in a book by Ritz-Carlton that if you see it, you own it. And I remember seeing that and thinking, man, there's, I can't walk away from that. Well, hang I, on. Somebody needs to write that down. If you see it, you own it. Come on, turn to somebody and tell them right now, if you see it. You own it. That is a powerful statement. Yeah. Some, some really rich guy came up with that. So it wasn't me. But, um, so I, we saw it. And I came home. And I was like, hey, Dad, I, you know, here's my experience here. And I, I think we've got to do something. So he turned me loose. And we raised money and built that building. 
um, that you guys can see a little bit there in the picture, and now it's home to, I think, 42 children living there. Wow. 42 to 35, somewhere in there. And that's really that pastor, though, too. Um, and I think sometimes we can elevate like, oh, well, he's a pastor. Of course, that's what he's supposed to do. No, that's what we are all supposed to do. We are, you, you are all, you are, uh, uh, Peter talks about this idea of the, the holy priesthood. You are a priest over your neighborhood. You are a priest over your workplace. You are a priest over your campus. That means you are responsible. You, cannot, you, can, you can step away from that and say, I'm not gonna own that, but God put you in that workplace. He put you in that neighborhood. He put you on that campus as a priest and said, if you see it, you own it. This is, I put you here because I need you. And I think about this pastor. So he's just taking kids in off the street. And now how many kids does he have? I think it's 42 that we're, we're sitting in at home right now. We're actually in talks about building another one through that same church because it's getting a little bit too full. Wow. So man, phenomenal stories come out of there. So that's part of the work you're doing. But then also um, when you and I went to lunch, we were talking about one of the, I think I can tell one of the big passions for you is the local church and, um, and the local church, us being a voice for the church that does not have a voice. And I think I am so guilty, even though I know of the underground church, even though I know of persecution around the world, I forget. And you guys do extensive work, like you're working in Iran right now. Yeah, in Iran, we actually just this last week, or maybe the week before, we just crossed over 201,000 physical Bibles moved into that country. And physical Bibles are a big deal. I know we've got version, all these other digital uh, programs that we can use, but not everybody has access to that. But then a lot of people in these restricted countries are still nervous about getting onto some type of technology where mm. their activity be contr- can be tracked or it can be shut down. But even more important beyond that, we like the physical Bible because it empowers the local church uh, who interacts with somebody who's either asking questions about Christianity in a predominantly Islamic nation, or they've requested a Bible. So we work with Iranian television ministries. We've got social media avenues where people were, are engaging with, and then we send somebody from a local house church in Iran to hand them that Bible. It opens the opportunity for them to present the gospel message, invite them to get plugged in and planted into a church. So it's more than just about the Bible. It's about the connection mm-hmm. that's being made in the process. Uh, but now we can say 201,000 people in Iran have been handed a Bible, have been presented the gospel message, and have been invited to be a part of a local church just because we're, we're doing that. But you guys aren't going into Iran to train those pastors. They, you, you were in Turkey? Yeah, t- right before the pandemic, we did our, our first leadership conference. So we bring pastors out of Iran, and we work in Iraq too, so we could do this in Iraq or Turkey. On this one, we, we were in Turkey. There's a picture of it. If they have pictures, you're only going to see the backs of heads of people. I'm not self-promoting myself teaching out at a conference. They just, <laughs> they just wouldn't allow us to take pictures of their faces uh, for security reasons. So, Okay, stop there for just a second. Why? Like, why can't we, what's, what's the, I mean, if you show their face, what could potentially happen? I think it's important for me to hear that and know what's happening with these leaders. Yeah, well, I mean, there's anything from social persecution, just from their community and society. Neighbors could persecute them. Family members could abandon them. All the the stories that we've heard about radical Islamic beliefs are very true. Hmm. And so there's people in this room. I mean, these people were sharp folks, too, by the way. These were, there's two or three lawyers in this room that lead house churches. There was doctors, businessmen in there. Um, and women, half of the Iranian church is led by women mm-hmm. in, in house churches. So these aren't, it's not like village people. This isn't, these, these are very affluent, very 
uh, intelligent individuals, much smarter mm -hmm. than, than I think I am. When you said village so, people, all I saw was the, the police officer and okay, I the so. construction <laughs> worker, and I thought... Radio DJ is, over here. Is, is that what you... <laughs> what kind of pastor's conference are you having? Yeah. It's like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're equipping these people to do all kinds of stuff. But even in the midst of this development, the realities of the persecution that they can face are very real. Mm -hmm. um, the gentleman who helps lead this network, I mean, he shared stories of him getting beat up. He actually lives in Turkey now. He sought asylum is in Turkey. Uh, but he was arrested, beaten up. I mean, he was stabbed in the eye. He still has sight, amazing story. Uh, but stabbed in the eye, just beaten up by the police because of their beliefs. And so they run a high risk. They, they're, they're high risk for uh, the work that they're doing and their belief in evangelism. At this conference, one of the amazing stories that will tie into this, uh, we were doing interviews with some of these people. And some of the, the people in this room actually are the ones that help us coordinate Bible distributions throughout the country. And we were sitting there interviewing one of the ladies, kind of getting feedback from her. And she literally rides in taxi cabs every single day, and that's her mission field. Because she, she's like, it's safe. I'm in a car. They have those little glass plexiglass shield things. So she can sit there, and she can talk to the cab driver, get to know him, and start sharing the gospel message. And if it gets awkward, she can just get out. Mm. So that's a good plan. So she handled, She has these Bibles and stuff with her. But we're like, why, you know, why do you do this? And, and why do you think... Some people are, you know, statistically, Iran is one of the fastest growing churches, national churches in the world right now. A little over 5%, 5.5% a year, they say. And it's growing really fast. Why do you think that is? And her response was, because we don't have the freedom to have church like you all do in America and the West. And so every mm -hmm. Christian takes it as a personal responsibility right. to share the gospel. So wow. she goes, I, or it dies in my country. So I have a personal responsibility to make sure the people that I interact with daily understand the gospel message. Wow. I'm not inviting them to a big church service or a big church outreach or event like you guys can. Yeah. I have to do it. Yeah, I think what I love about that is the, one of the most beautiful things that we have is the freedom of worship. I mean, I mean this, is, this is being broadcast, and anybody can watch it anywhere, and nobody's going to run through those doors and shut us down. I'm not going to get arrested this week for talking about Jesus or having my Bible, and we have this amazing, beautiful facility where we can come and openly worship. I mean, this is a blessing. This is good. This is good. And I think many persecuted countries, they love to have an opportunity like this, but it can also work against us because it can lull you to sleep. We just did a whole series on that, didn't we, about stay alert? I mean, it can lull you to sleep in thinking that, oh, yeah, so that's the pastor. That's why we hire people, and we bring them to this building, and this is where the Jesus stuff happens. And so that can work against us in America because then the gospel gets taken out of your hands. And I think, it just if I can preach that for just a moment, the gospel has got to be put back in your hands. Like, you are just as powerful as any of these stories. When you hear about some lady in Iran and she's in a taxi cab, I don't know, I just have this image of like, she's like next level, they're going to write her into pages of scripture. That's how I might envision her. And, but to know that, no, this is just an ordinary, and it's, by the way, that's, that seems that women are doing this doesn't seem to make sense because of the persecution of women in a country like that. Could you explain how women are leading this kind of movement? How's that? It seems counter to what we might see. Well, yeah, mine's not going to be like pleasant. My feeling is that it's just a bunch of weak men. Mm. I don't, I don't wow. know if it's any more than that other than the guys are pretty 
happy-go-lucky, chill, laid back. They don't want to do it. It's dorky or whatever it is. So I Thank God that does not describe snake. any of the men in this room. Thank uh, the Lord. Come on. Ladies, turn to the man you came with and say, that's not you, baby. That is not you. Just lack of male leadership is what wow. I personally think it is. I think it's that simple. Okay, and let's pray and go home. <laughs> you just called us all out. Man, that is, that's so powerful. So you're doing this, so many different things that you're involved in, and we've all seen also what's been happening in Afghanistan, and you guys are also doing some things in Afghanistan that I, um, I mean, I've seen the news stories, and I kind of know what's been happening, uh, but I had no idea some of the persecution that is taking place there right now and the work that you guys are doing. Yeah, so we were, we were heavily involved in Afghanistan from I'm not going to tell you the years because I can't remember the years right now, but it was 12 years, and I think we wound down some of our work there in 2015, 2016, but we educated over 8,000 women and children uh, through computers, English, and literacy. So under old Taliban rule, before we moved in over 20 years ago, uh, women and a lot of children were not, had, didn't have access to education. So we came in, and we're trying to get them caught up. It was the first trip I ever took my wife to, Beth. She's blonde hair. Bad plan to take a blonde hair lady to Afghanistan for your first trip overseas. I bought her a burqa, but she wouldn't wear it. Um, that's rude. But uh, <laughs> it's in a box somewhere. Um, but she, had a, she was an education major, that's why. And so it's like, hey, she's going to come in, and she's going to help us take these educational programs uh, to the next level. And, but it was amazing to see uh, just the transformation that went through these people's lives. Some of these people went on to actually work in uh, government roles wow. in Afghanistan, the government that was just thrown over a couple weeks ago, Yeah, but because they learned English and we taught them to use a computer uh, and actually read and write better in their own language, it equipped them to kind of all of a sudden climb the ranks in society yeah. very quickly. So a lot of them went in and were, were working in, in government. Um, but then, you know, we felt that our, that had come to an end in a season and we began to kind of stop those programs. But while we were there, the, the whole premise, our core mission is evangelism. So it's compassion evangelism. We'll, we'll go and provide somebody's physical need, or it could be education. But the reason we're in a country is to mm -hmm. use that as an avenue to talk, to tell people about Jesus, to reach people, to empower the local church, to reach their nation. And so a uh, house church network was, was started over the years of doing that. And there's about 380 people, I think, that are connected to that house church network today. And so when the news broke about Afghanistan, we had some of our former employees. We were a registered NGO with the Afghan government. So we had... Mm -hmm. Um, vehicles there. We had 40 staff, and we had an office there. We were papered. We could function like a legitimate organization. An NGO is a non-government organization. And so we are a U.S. and a Christian NGO. Mm. That, that's a bad, bad situation right now under the current right. Taliban takeover. Right. So some of our former staff, there's about 40 of them, begin to send their paperwork in say, hey, we got to get out of here. This, this is turning south quick. And this is before the official withdrawal in uh, from the uh, that we had as a, the U.S. a couple weeks ago, and I was like, okay. So I told some guys in our office, you know, we don't we don't endorse anybody. You know, I'm not taking responsibility for anybody. We can do employment verification forms though, and so that was kind of the stance we were taking. And, and some of the people would start telling me, hey, this is this situation is going south. I'm like, okay, and then it erupted, mm -hmm. and it was like, this is bad. And at first, I didn't want to get involved. I was like, man, we're, we're busy, and we got a lot of momentum in Iran. We got things going on in China, and you know, Cuba and Iraq, we got a lot of new projects in Iraq that we were looking at. And I was like, we don't think we have the capacity to really jump into this. 
And so I was about a week late, and, but then I started thinking. I was like, man, these families are reaching out to us, and they're asking for our help. They're sending in this paperwork. They worked for us. They gave 12 years of their lives wow. helping us fulfill this mission, helping to train these women and these children in these educational programs. And what we're hearing is Taliban could target people that worked really closely mm-hmm. with the U.S., U.S. Mm-hmm. agencies, and then Christian on top of that. So I was mm-hmm. like, and it's all papered. It's all there. They're not, they're not going to hide that. And, uh, and about that time, I feel like God dropped in the story of the Good Samaritan. And it was one of those moments where my assistant had just resigned after 16 years. She's awesome, and I'm excited for her. It's a good situation. But it was like, it was kind of overwhelming to handle all this stuff. And um, God just spoke to my heart, and it was, you can be a priest or a Levite, or you can stop and be inconvenienced right now. And I just felt wow. challenged with, are you available? Wow. Are you and the staff available yeah. to stop everything that you think is important, that you think you're doing for me? And can you help? Man, that, what I love about that is that's something we pray, and we'll pray at the end today, our sending prayer. God, I'm available, and I'm willing. But then busy, that word busy, and everybody, we're, we're all busy. But that story messed you up. And you've heard that story since you were a little boy. Like how many, and then, But God drops that story on you. And so then you get involved, and then there's a, a family that you guys have helped to uh, get out who are under severe persecution. Yeah, so just being in the flow, because um, it's a flow. Like, you start getting connected to people who are able to, to move. Uh, I've met several former CIA ops, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, uh, political connections in D.C. at a higher level. It's just a network of people that it takes to get people out. And... If we wouldn't have been in that flow, we wouldn't have been able to respond to this family. And I, th- I think we've got a, a phone call or a piece of a phone call that we had with her. Um, but it was a family at the time that we just heard that the Taliban was kind of messing with them a little bit. And they were pursuing them and they need to get out. And they need to get out quickly. And because of that, uh, it was a friend of ours out of Europe, a uh, ministry out of Europe. They, they know this family. We didn't know them. And they reached out and they said, hey, we know you're getting people out. Can you help? Mm. And we were able to help, and it wasn't until after the fact that we realized how bad the situation really was. Well, and, and tell them what the Taliban did. We actually have some pictures of the, of the family, yeah. of, the, of the husband and wife, and what the Taliban did. So this is, we call her Nalia, that's not a real name. Um, so she went to the airport in Kabul the day that it kind of, the news broke, and we all saw the images of people you know, grabbing onto the airplane. Mm-hmm. Her and her family are standing outside of, of the, the airport. They ended up living out there for 11 days. And the bomb went off. She tells her experience of just when that bomb went off. They were close enough to where it rattled them, it threw them down, but it didn't kill them, didn't hurt them too mm-hmm. badly. So they stayed out there. Uh, they were trying to get in, trying to get in. And Taliban would go around and just start kind of messing with people, prodding, poking, you know, you know, why are you trying to leave? And she tells their whole experience with that. But in that conversation with the Taliban at the, the airport, they begin to get enraged with her and her husband, and you can see the images, but they, they, beat, they beat him pretty severely. Um, were beating her, older, her oldest son, or her younger brother, excuse me, and her husband with their guns, like the butt of their guns, mm-hmm. not shooting them, but literally using them as weapons. Smashed mm-hmm. in their, their face, their heads. Um, and so they went back to their house you know, that night. Mm-hmm. The Taliban ended up coming to their home later that night mm-hmm. and um, was wanting their car. And their whole reasoning was is she had worked for a Canadian NGO uh, teaching women's rights. So teaching against arranged marriages, teaching against selling young girls into marriages, teaching against 
um, girls at young ages being married. And so that's anti-Taliban philosophy and, and Afghan culture. So they did not like what she was doing and apparently had been following her for a number of years. I didn't know that at the time. So I was curious why they were dogging her so much. So they showed up at their house and said, we want your car, we want your keys. And they're like, you know, no, like what, why? And they're like, no, this car was earned from money from a woman, so you guys can't have it. You, you, it's wow. against, against our values now. So they were afraid for their lives. They'd just gotten beat up by them. They turned the car over. They end up fleeing that night, stayed in the hotel for nine days. They run out of money. They've got some biscuits and some water, and they're literally in the mountains hiding out. And then the Taliban sends them. There's a picture of them hiding in the mountains. Yeah, when you say the mountains, I think we, this is one I had to be reminded. Not like the Rocky Mountains where, you know, where you're like, oh, yeah, a lot of, lot of places to hide. No, like David running from Saul mountains. Yeah. A cave. So that's a picture of, of them in that moment. This is and just it's blurry, by the way. The reason it's blurry is to protect their identity. Yeah. Uh, so that she gets a, a text message um, on her phone. So apparently, you know, within a day or so of being there, they still got battery power. And it was a threatening message to them. We know where you live, da-da-da, we're coming for you, that type of thing. And I think we have that mm. somewhere on our website where people can read it. And this is about the time where we got the call. And so we were able to coordinate with a group um, of former Green Berets and SEALs. And within 48 hours, they went in and got them out and pulled them into a neighboring country. So when we talk about being a voice for those who have no voice, um, this family has no voice. This family had no voice, no hope, if, it, if not for... Jason, and not just World Compassion, but for the church. It's the, it's the church, and it's his life. It's how he was stirred up. It's how he was raised. It's what was put into him. It, it's the, the values that you were taught about who Jesus is that, that brought you to that point of helping this family. When we talk about being a voice for those who have no voice, I want you to literally hear her voice. She called you, and you guys talked for about an hour. About an hour interview. And on, on their website, you can listen to a 25-minute excerpt of that. Um, what, give them your website address real quick. Worldcompassion.tv. Okay, worldcompassion.tv. But you also have a 60-second clip. This is um, her name again. We call her Nalia. Call her Nalia. This is Nalia's call to Jason. Listen to this. We will spend uh, 12 or 30 days in the mountains, or it was very bad situation for us. So you will never imagine that how much difficulties my children see because there were nothing to eat, nothing to drink. Every day we were hiding ourselves near the stone, stones. At night when Taliban came, they were on the light and they were searching the places. So we were hiding, my children were shouting. <laughs> sorry sir, I'm sorry. So this is who we are as the local church. We have this amazing opportunity to be a voice for those who have no voice. Like, we are so blessed 
Like, look at where we live. Look at the means that you have in your life. I, 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 I don't care how little means you have. You Look at what you've been blessed with. And maybe God is stirring in you uh, foster care or adoption or, or maybe it's the, what uh, Jason's doing through World Compassion. You know, I, again, I want to challenge you as a church. If you see it, you own it. Like, I want to challenge you to go out there, and as you walk by those tables, don't just walk by. Stop. Learn a little bit more about the organization. Learn about what they're doing. See if maybe God might stir you up in doing something but also remember that, um, in fact, if you want to do work with the Afghan refugees, they're, they're, they're here. Yeah, 800 families are here in Tulsa, are coming to Tulsa. Yeah. 800 families, 800 Afghan families need, need homes. That might be 800 people. Yeah, or 800 people, I'm sorry, yeah. 800 people, they need, they need a home. And maybe you have an extra room. And God's just stirring in you. You're going to be so tempted Oh, yeah, but you know, I but I but I but I'm so but I I and you gotta say, who am I gonna be in that story? Am I willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel? Am I willing to to sacrifice something so someone else can receive the comfort and the compassion and the kindness and the mercy and the grace? of a father who loves them. That's my challenge for you today is just find a place. It might be your neighbor, it might be your workplace. I don't know where it's gonna be, but God's gonna prompt you. And I want us to pray together. If you just bow your heads for a moment, I wanna pray for Jason and Beth and their kids and their, their organization. Father, thank you. In the first we start, but I just thank you for Jason. Uh, he's just a really humble guy. I know he takes no credit for any of this. I know he gives all the glory to you, but you have to have a willing vessel. You have to have somebody that says yes. And what I thank you about him and his family is they are a model for us. They're an example for us. They, they stir passions within us. So I, I thank you that he's, he stepped out. I thank you for his legacy, for his dad and his mom and what he has stepped into. We pray for the work that's moving forward in the, in the, in the shadows. The, so much of what we haven't heard today. We thank you that your spirit is moving and working. And now, God, I pray for our people as we sit here today. We have a great responsibility. We cannot, cannot walk away from this, God. We know that. We cannot walk away from this. But we got to walk into it. So help us, Father, to walk into those places that you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, will you thank Jason for coming? Come on, thank him. Thank you, Jason. Love you, man.